Groucho telexed us. I know somebody set up a meeting and we were invited for lunch. So we went to Groucho Marx's house for lunch. Actually, three of us did. John, John chickened out. You know, he had the nice there and the, the, he had the attractive nurse and the attractive manager. And then, uh, then he suddenly had the attractive piano player and they uh, come in and uh, so he, he sang a couple of songs for us. And then he said, well, you're singers. Fucking sing. So, and, and we went, oh, yeah. We know it couldn't possibly. We don't have a guitar, you know. No instrument. Oh no, we got one here. So they produced this um, Spanish guitar out of nowhere. So uh, we we sang thirty nine for Groucho Marx. Sparks fans, once more again, oh no, it's all you ever think about is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast solely devoted to the life and career of Ron and Russell Mail, aka Sparks. I am your host, Christian Huey, and this is episode 16, Indiscreet Part 2. Now, I've been on a sabbatical of sorts since I dropped episode 15. If you happen to follow me on social media, you'll know that I trod the boards a bit back home here in Austin, Texas. Uh, Alas, COVID time is an inhospitable time for those of us in the performing arts. So like thousands or more of others, I've invested an absurd amount of time and energy into projects that ended up being dashed by this fakakta virus. But I am back. And I'm sure I don't have to tell all of you that social distancing notwithstanding, the last couple of months have been bursting at the seams with sparksy goodness. As I write this, a steady drip, drip, drip has been available in digital format for some time, and the physical album itself will very soon be in our hot little hands. Now, I won't bother to try to chronicle in this space the dozens and dozens of interviews, reviews, news stories, etc., etc., surrounding Sparks and their new album, which I'm sure you know by now is absolutely astonishing, and I am definitely not paid by anyone to say that. Uh, And, of course, Sparks are still teasing the eventual release of Edgar Wright's documentary, as well as the movie musical Annette. I will share with you, however, something I thought was really touching. Uh, This is a local broadcast network affiliate in Los Angeles running a long overdue segment about their hometown heroes and predicting that 2020 will be the year that really puts sparks on the map. Really. For real. 
We have a career that spans six decades and 24 albums and a highly dedicated fan base. Could 2020 finally be the year the L.A. band Sparks achieves mainstream success? In tonight's Entertainment Report, our Doug Cole chats with founders, brothers Ron and Russell Mayle about why Sparks is about to have a year like it's never experienced before. Well, good evening. It's not like Sparks haven't experienced success. They just haven't experienced a prolonged period of it in one place. Well, that's about to change. Recognize this tune? He knows what I mean. Oh, Roger, oh, Roger. How about this one? If you said yes to any of them, I'd be impressed. Not because it's unfathomable, but more because your music taste is probably ahead of its time just like the band who recorded them all the way back in 1972. For whatever reasons, the perception of it is that it's always kind of running a parallel course to the rest of pop music. Brothers Russell and Ron Mayle of Sparks. We've always tried to kind of straddle the two worlds of, of pop music and then having some kind of artistic intention as well. Ahead of their time, it's a stigma that Sparks have carried for, really, the entirety of their 50-year career. A large number of the people that are followers of Sparks, what they like in us is, is the fact that they can't always place what it is that we're doing. But it also led to their success and longevity, no matter how underground they may be. You guys have done Coachella. You guys have done Blastonbury. You've collaborated with some of the biggest names in the industry. It was really disappointing, though, that the latest letter we got from Morrissey was actually done on a computer. It was? Still never heard of Sparks. 2020 is poised to be an exciting year for you guys. Well, that's about to change. We've got a new album coming out. All that got a documentary based on your lives? We were really, uh, really excited and really happy when uh, Edgar Wright had approached us. Add that to a film the brothers co-wrote, a musical titled Annette, with Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard now cast as the leads. It's going to be this, uh, you know, pretty high profile and uh, really unique movie musical. Spark's new album, A Steady Drip, 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 will release physically on July 3rd. In the meantime, the Edgar Wright documentary and Annette will release sometime later this year or early next year. With your entertainment report, Doug Kolk, KTLA 5 News. Thanks to Harley Feinstein for posting that on the Indiscreet Facebook group. By the way, hope you're doing well, Harley. Remember, you can always drop me a line at podcastsparks at gmail.com or find my page on Facebook. All you ever think about is Sparks. And now... Dance, goddammit, it's all you ever think about is Sparks, episode 16. Recall that in 1972, Bearsville manager Albert Grossman told Half Nelson to consider changing their group name to the Sparks Brothers because he perceived a spiritual connection between their act and that of the Marx Brothers. Half Nelson chose to meet Grossman halfway, dropping the brothers bit, and going with the less specifically referential Sparks. Uh, after all, they didn't want to step on the toes 
of the then-surviving Groucho, Gummo, and Zeppo. Now consider that the newly christened Sparks embarked on their first UK tour later that year and headlined a number of gigs at the Marquee in London and elsewhere. Several of those gigs had the unsigned band Queen as Sparks' opening act. Freddie Mercury himself later cited Sparks as an influence in those early days, particularly in regard to Russell Mayles' melodramatic and mostly falsetto vocal stylings. When asked, Ron Mayle professed to be less than impressed by Queen, although he certainly did try to snag Brian May in 1974 to add some heft and virtuosity to Sparks' sound. Speaking of sound, there were unmistakable overlaps in the sorts of music both Sparks and Queen ventured into in the mid-70s. I'm speaking, of course, about the neo-Weimar uh, cabaret sound with its expressionist piano and angular yet seductive rhythms. But there were other genres, related maybe, but distinct. British music hall, ragtime, skiffle. The Sparks were mining those genres and, and others that they had in common for inspiration from day one. But Queen, who began their career traversing the space between heavy metal and progressive rock, must have raised some eyebrows. Or maybe a single arched one from Ron making his trademark suspicious-slash-bemused face. With the release of their second album of 1974, Sheer Heart Attack. More specifically, Queen's appearance on Top of the Pops performing their new single, Killer Queen. A song and performance that seemed to out-sparks sparks. They did this by pulling two big tricks. One, Freddie Mercury was absolutely outdoing Russell Mayle on the androgyny front. If the sight and sound of Russell Mayle in 1974 was causing mums and dads to click their tongues and shake their heads in disapproval, as they did towards so many other pop stars in that day, uh, with his falsetto trilling, his cascading curls, his sashaying hips, the form-fitting jumpsuits, whatever, Freddie upped the ante with lacquered nails, makeup, and subtle winks and nods towards gay culture, gay camp culture. Uh, trick number two, Mercury wrote a tune that, knowingly or not, borrowed heavily from Ron Mayle's songbook, a cabaret-inspired piece about a social misfit, an upper-class prostitute in this case, that was clever, naughty, and unabashedly pop. As Queen morphed from a hard rock band that flirted with cabaret music into a cabaret-inspired act that could still rock hard, they chose their 1975 album to be their grand, ambitious statement of purpose, pulling out every tool from their musical Swiss army knife. They released it the same month Sparks put out their similarly ambitious work. And whether they intended to tweak Sparks on the nose for it or not, they lifted their album's title directly from one of the Marx Brothers' best-known and most beloved films, A Night at the Opera. Even after Sparks returned to the States in 1976, changed their aesthetic, and were no longer a local competition, Queen doubled down on their new approach and titled their 1976 album after another Marx Brothers movie, A Day at the Races. Well... Not only was Groucho Marx not offended by this branding, he sent a personal telegram to Queen congratulating them on the new album's release and invited them to visit him at his home in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, purely coincidentally, being Ron and Russell Mayle's birthplace and once in future home. 
When the meeting finally took place, Groucho and Queen took turns serenading one another, a bizarre culmination of an unlikely mutual admiration society. Groucho died, sadly, a few months later. Although the career paths of Sparks and Queen diverged considerably after Sparks returned to the U.S., their professional and creative circles overlapped one last time when both bands shared the same producer, Mac, for two albums piece between 1980 and 1982. Okay, so without dissecting the entire Sparks-Queen Venn diagram and arguing for or against uh, the superiority of one group over the other, it would be intriguing to know more about their presumably friendly rivalry during the mid-1970s, and particularly what Ron and Russ thought about Queen not only making similar aesthetic moves as Sparks during those years, but also going so far as to flirt with and ultimately consummate a relationship with Sparks' own namesake. Did they find such audaciousness amusing? Galling? Or perhaps just indiscreet? Indiscreet Side 2 kicks off with Pineapple, a lyrically bonkers number that begins with Russell aping a long-lost Beach Boys harmony before segueing into a Bavarian-sounding oompa song, heavy on the honking tuba. An increasingly rare songwriting contribution from Russell, Pineapple manages to hold its own against Ron's more celebrated tunes on the album, although it avoids the rhythmic curveballs that the elder male was so fond of deploying, especially during the island years. Instead, the song mostly sticks to a 4-4 beat, with the tuba notes alternating between the root and dominant notes of whichever chord the measure is based around. Tonally, the song is more adventurous than it would seem on first listen. It seems mostly built around D major, although the chorus sounds like, I want to say, E7 instead of E minor, which would resolve more smoothly back to the tonic D. Uh, the result makes the song sound giddily off-balance and slightly disorienting. In keeping with the Sparks tradition of truth and advertising for every song that boasts an unlikely title, Pineapple does indeed appear to be about the sucrose-rich uh, tropical fruit. Uh, speaking of advertising, that's really what the song is all about. It's a jingle or marketing pitch from what could be the Dole Company or United Fruit from the old days of the Banana Republics in Central America. As Russell's ad man gets deeper into the song, it becomes clear that this weightless ditty is less about vitamin C and more about socioeconomic domination and the soft slavery of capitalism in overdrive. Tropical air help us harvest all year and serves to promote the vitamin C content, in turn yielding greater demand. Pineapple. Got to send a case to the city jail. The warden likes it because it won't conceal any sort of handmade weapons that are baked right into their buns. And the taste is delectable. But won't the prisoners hit the table and shout, Pineapple! Pineapple! Pineapple fulfills every need. Pineapple. Shares are gonna divide. Pineapple. If in us you confide... Got a contract for all the schools. They will use it for all the meals. Sure, the kids will throw it real far, because it ain't a milk chocolate bar, but you know it don't stain so bad. 
but won't they fling it at a friend and shout, Pineapple! Tastes too healthy to me! Pineapple! It's filled with vitamin C! Pineapple! Fulfills every need! Pineapple! To all the ships at sea, pineapple. For the English at tea, pineapple. To the Siamese twins, pineapple. To heal those who have sinned, ship some to the alpine skiing team. The coach won't have to worry about the calories. Sure, it ain't strudel. They're nice, but it helps your balance on ice. Puts you back on the winning trail. But don't the players moan and groan and shout, pineapple. We get it every old night, pineapple. But we're winning all right, pineapple. Fulfills every need. Pineapple. Shares are going to divide. Pineapple. If in us you confide. Pineapple. Fulfills every need. Pineapple. Upward trends are foreseen. Pineapple. Do invest in big P. Pineapple. Fulfills every need. Pineapple. And the tins can be used. Pineapple. For anything that you choose. Pineapple. Pineapple. So we'll jet you there, breathe the Hawaiian air, where hula is life, and luau's are for the wife. So visit our factory soon. Pineapple is one of those spots on that Sparks Queen Venn diagram that I mentioned that overlaps really convincingly. Pineapple could sit comfortably alongside a number of the brighter, airier, pre-rock-styled tracks on A Night at the Opera. It also drinks deeply from the well of ragtime-era music. The chief difference between the Sparks tune and Freddie Mercury's composition is, as it almost always is when comparing the lyrical habits of the two bands, the difference between the ironic and the ersatz. Compare the following two music clips, which I'll play back to back. The first is from Queen's Seaside Rendezvous, and the second is, of course, Pineapple. They're aesthetically similar, right? But lyrically, they're pretty different, invoking a similar sense of wide-eyed nostalgia to the uh, Beatles' 1967 song, Your Mother Should Know, the lyrics of Seaside Rendezvous have our narrator engaging in quaint courtship rituals with the object of his affections. Uh, here's a representative lyric from Freddie Mercury. I feel like dancing in the rain. Can I have a volunteer? Just keep right on dancing. What a damn jolly good idea. And now compared to Russell Mayles' words, go to send a case to the city jail. The Warren likes it because it won't conceal any sort of handmade weapons that are baked right into their buns. That are baked right into their buns. Again, uh, musically, both songs employ a similar carefree bounce anchored by a rollicking honky-tonk piano, but it's only Sparks' offering that points to something obscure and vaguely sinister going on. <clears throat> Parenthetically, I found out that James Dole, the man who brought the pineapple to the American masses, relied on the indentured servitude of workers from Hawaii and South America to help him lower the market price of pineapples in the U.S. He also held a contest to see who could transport by air his pineapples from the mainland to Hawaii and back the fastest. The contest resulted in the deaths of 10 amateur pilots. Google it. 
Pineapple is exhibit A or C or D or Q of Sparks and Queen sharing a similar taste for camp while simultaneously having totally different lyrical approaches, even though this time was Russell and not Ron. Mercury's words could tend toward the maudlin, whereas neither male brother, uh, Russell again in this rare case, leaves room for sentimentality, and they're more likely to impart a grim history lesson inside a song than to make a romantic proposal beneath the moonlight. Russell has gone on record, by the way, calling Pineapple his favorite self-penned song. I think I agree. Here it is. Tropical helps us harvest all year and serves to promote the vitamin C content in turn yielding greater demand. Pineapple! Go to send the keys to the sigil. Next on side two, we have the first Spark song whose title often showed up in print with an asterisk in place of a letter. It's the fan favorite, Tits, or T asterisk T-S for the faint-hearted. A boozy rock ballad with heavy emphasis on Ron's piano, Tits repeats Pineapple's trick of fooling the listener into assuming they're about to hear a light-hearted romp with disposable lyrics. Yes, the song is nominally about tits, but only as a way to frame our narrator's anguish over the loss of his sex life since his wife gave birth to their son. 
Through Russell's tormented quaver, our protagonist sits at a bar with his friend Harry. That's you, by the way. The song features great use of the second-person voice. And swills round after round of cheap liquor while he pours his guts out about how his wife's tits have gone from sexual playthings to little baby Joe's source of nutrition. Adding insult to injury, it looks like the poor guy's been snowed. His wife hasn't lost interest in sex at all, just sex with him. She seems to be having an affair with another man, a man who presumably gets to enjoy those very same tits that are off-limits to our protagonist. Always game for a plot twist, Ron's lyrics reveal that it's likely Harry, that's you, who's been doing the cuckolding. Rather than fly into a rage upon this realization, however, our narrator throws up his hands in despair, toasts old Harry, and orders another round. Here are those lyrics in full. There are a lot of them. It's a long song. Harry, it's good of you to stay, hear every word I say, and not just duck away. God, these drinks are something warm and watered down. Barkeep, how about some ice? Hey, Harry, sit back down. Say that little thing there's fine from behind. They all look good after three or four. So drink, Harry, drink, Harry, drink till you can't see no more. Of anything, no more. Of anything, drink, Harry, drink, Harry, drink till you can't see no more. For months, for years, tits were once a source of fun and games at home. And now, she says, tits are only there to feed our little Joe so that he'll grow. Harry, it's really rough at home. I've caught her on the phone. Hey, who's that on the phone? Oh, that's no one, dear. The standard sort of line. Harry, you know me well. You know that I'm not blind. Hey, you ain't been drinking. Don't you know I'm buying? They all taste good after three or four. So drink, Harry, drink, Harry, drink, till you can't drink no more. Of anything, no more. Of anything, drink, Harry, drink, till you can't drink no more. How well I know tits were only there for fun and games at home. And now, she says, tits are only there to feed our little Joe so that he'll grow. God, the room is spinning round. Hey, drive me home, old pal. God, you sure get around. Harry, I know it's you who's breaking up my home. Harry, don't say a word. Just drop me off at home. Harry, forgive me, Harry. Let's have just one more. It's all so good after three or four. It's all so good after three or four. It's all so good after three or four. So let's drink, Harry. Drink till we can't drink no more. Of anything, no more. Of anything, drink, Harry, drink, Harry, drink, till we can't drink no more. How well I know. Tits were once a source of fun and games at home. And now, she says, tits are only there to feed our little Joe so that he'll grow into a man. So let's drink, Harry. Drink till we can't see no more. Musically, Tits keeps us at the cabaret, with Ron framing each verse with Bach-like staccato chords on a fake harpsichord, mimicking the uneasy gait of a guy who stewed to the gills. The chords crawl up the scale, but uneasily so, with every few ascending chords followed by a stumble back down the keyboard. The chord progression for the intro is C major, A minor, D minor, G major, with a B bass, um, which is surprisingly uh, fitting for a C major key. Competing for the listener's attention against Ron's keyboards is the bass line, which sounds deep and wobbly enough to possibly be played on the double bass. 
the spaced out swelling of those bass notes give the sense of woozy exhaustion, like the instrument can't itself muster enough motivation to play more than once per bar. After the song's first verse in C major, Tits keeps climbing cadence, but disposes of any easily decipherable key. The verse that begins with, God, these drinks are something warm and watered down, starts on an A major, and then wanders over to G, then to B minor, back to A, and then a worried shift to A minor, and finishing up with the more sensible-sounding triad of C to C7 to G. When the song decides it's found a chorus with drink, Harry drink, Harry drink, we're somewhere in the realm of F major. And if the music itself isn't disorienting enough, then we have Russell as the cuckolded anti-hero, returning repeatedly to the shouted refrain of Harry, getting louder and more urgent as the song progresses. At the song's end, Russell exhorts, or demands, his buddy to drink Harry, drink some more, as an ethereal-sounding synthesizer guides the song's climax and seems to lift everything and everyone up to something resembling a momentary heaven. Out of all of Ron Mayle's tragic characters, the protagonist of Tits really stands out and resonates with anyone who's reached one of those points in their adult life where things haven't panned out as hoped or advertised. It's also quite a smart-ass answer to a question I can only imagine Ron and Russell have received a few times. Why don't you guys sing about normal rock and roll stuff like Tits? Let's have a listen to Tits. Tits were only there for fun and games at home. 
And now she says chicks are only there to feed our little Joe so that he'll grow. Sparks takes us to an old-fashioned Southern American hoedown in It Ain't 1918 before dropping us off at a silent-era cinema with the house organist in fine fettle, telling the brief tale of an elderly veteran of the Great War and his wife. Russell sings his verses at about a mile a minute, taking on the high-pitched and still vaguely European style of Tin Pan Alley-era crooners. He comes off sounding somewhere between a carnival barker and an auctioneer. Ron's lyrics tell the tale of Johnny, a resident of St. Louis, Missouri, who's mentally stuck forever on Armistice Day when the Allies won the First World War. The promise back then of unfettered good times ahead has given Johnny all the emotional sustenance that he would need for the rest of his life. What's more, he and his wife seem perfectly content with their modest home and their ancient automobile. Considering the old couple a charity case, some well-to-do neighbors offered to upgrade the couple's life, but they are flabbergasted and offended when Johnny and his wife politely decline the financial assistance. 
Johnny was a soldier with the Allies. Johnny was a soldier all the way. Johnny was a soldier with a fun side. Johnny liked to laugh a lot each day. Johnny met a girl who was a beauty. Johnny never thought to live in sin. Do you take this girl? Yes, I take this girl. Johnny had a next of kin. They were happy as they were, so everything around would change. But they would never, ever change. It ain't 1918. Except for these two. It ain't 1918. Everybody in Missouri knows them. Everybody there has seen their car. Everybody's seen their Stanley steamer. Everybody knows it's Johnny's car. Wave as you see Johnny drive to market. Watch a bit of past go steaming by. Johnny and his bride, Johnny and his car, without a change of any kind. And they were happy as they were. Everything around had changed, but they had never, ever changed. It ain't 1918, except for these two. It ain't 1918. It's easy to imagine it ain't 1918 blaring from the horn-shaped speaker of a 19-teens Victrola as the song's reliance on higher-end frequencies mimics the sound recordings uh, from that era. It ain't 1918 makes excellent use also of a country-western fiddle during those do-si-do verses, enlivened by enthusiastic hand claps. Meanwhile, the old-timey organ strains accompanying the chorus admirably match Russell's faux-serious self-puffery as he belts out, It ain't 1918 for me or for you. One part square dance and one part over there. It ain't 1918 is as far from rock and roll as one can get, offering only a slight nod to the genre via Trevor White's economically applied electric guitar. Also... As a reminder of just how long ago 1975 was, definitely thought-provoking to consider a time when veterans of the Great War actually lived among us. Here's It Ain't 1918. Johnny was a soldier with the Allies. Johnny was a soldier all the way. Johnny was a soldier with a fun side Johnny liked to laugh a lot each day Johnny met a girl who was a beauty Johnny never thought to live in sin Do you take this girl? Yes, I take this girl Johnny had a next of kin They were happy as they were So everything around would change But they were never worth a change Well, it ain't 1918 Except for this too It ain't 1918 Everybody in Missouri knows them Everybody there has seen their car Everybody's seen their standard steamer Everybody knows it's Johnny's car Wave as you see Johnny drive to market To watch a bit of Pasco steaming by Johnny and his bride, Johnny and his car Without change of any kind And they were happy as they were Everything around had changed But they had never ever changed But it ain't 1918 Except for these two It ain't 1918 With the lady by the name of Miller is Wouldn't it be nice to help out Johnny Kind of play a real life Santa Claus She and many other St. Louis people Bought a Johnny quite a fancy car And a modern home threw away his home Bought his wife a Paris scarf Johnny thanked the St. Louis folk But told them in a voice so sad That he would not stay as is The people of St. Louis were mad And they said It ain't 1918 
Song four on side two of Indiscreet is The Lady Is Lingering, one of the most conventional-sounding rock numbers on the album and somewhat of a redemptive companion piece to side A's How Are You Getting Home. Something like a mellowed-out version of a Kimono My House track, The Lady Is Lingering features no musicians beyond the core band, at least that I can hear, focuses on Russell's trilling falsetto as its melodic focal point. It's a surprisingly by-the-book, compositionally speaking, slow rock jam in A minor, although the song nonetheless gives off a vaguely creepy vibe, thanks to Russell's reliance on the higher end of his vocal range, which is always saying something, uh, and also the leering, lecherous lyrics and Ron's otherworldly synth sounds that crop up somewhere in the middle. If Ron's Love, Lauren, Everyman, and How Are You Getting Home seemed, without much hope, to be desperately avoiding yet another sexual strikeout, the protagonist of The Lady is Lingering can't believe his luck, as the object of his affections might actually be mutually interested. Still off-putting, though, is our guy's obsessive fixation on every detail of every movement by the titular lady in the song. Every word pronounced distinctly, slowly. There are no contractions, nothing slurred. Unprepared, you watch in rank amazement as she lights her cigarette and stirs. Every motion is complete. No editing of anything. Encouraging, encouraging, and not the customary bill of fare. Can't you see the lady is lingering? This lady's lingering, and you cannot believe the reason why. Every sip of the smallest quantity that still denotes apparent thirst. Every question is a means to draw long answers. Play the fool, it doesn't hurt. Splitting, splitting headache coming. Get up early in the morning. Where are the funny phrases that are always followed by goodbye, is it? For the sake of a good story, I like to imagine our hero and the lady is lingering and how are you getting home is the same guy and that he's making up for an earlier failure by having a happy ending tonight. Here is the lady is lingering. Can't 
Next, we have In the Future, the song that gives us perhaps the first hint that Ron and Russell were itching to dip their toe into the world of electronic music. Check out those video game soundtrack-like keyboard arpeggios right at the top, shooting at your ears like you're some kind of space invader. Okay, cool your joysticks, everyone. The future is a far, far cry from the marauder-assisted dance floor bangers of 1979's Revolutionary Number 1 in Heaven, and it is very much still a mid-70s rock number. Still, the songs focus on Ron's arpeggiated keyboard notes, particularly at the song's intro there, suggest that maybe the music of the future might have guitars take a back seat. Oh, wait, no. The future, the song, is absolutely lousy with the sound of rock guitar, and I don't mean to say that the guitar itself is lousy. Far from it. Trevor White never gets to show off his chops on Indiscreet more than he does here, bringing the final 15 seconds of the song to a shredding, screeching climax. And those keyboard sounds? Well, some of them sound intentionally unfuturistic, such as when Ron summons a Bach-like harpsichord for some Baroque-sounding descending arpeggios. Yeah, okay, so maybe in the future doesn't sound that futuristic after all. It is, however, ominous, evocative, chaotic, disorienting, even sort of violent, a bit like riding Space Mountain at Disneyland. And how about the lyrics? No dystopian imagery of flying cars and killer androids here. Instead, we're just listening to a guy try to cheer up his girl by telling her things may be blah today, but in the future, it's going to be great. 
Here are the lyrics. It's winter, it's raining, you're tired, she's fainting, you're bitter, she's brooding, but don't be disenchanted, cause you can barely stand it. The sweep and the grandeur, the scope and the laughter, the future, the future, the future's got it covered. With what will be discovered, in the future, fun is fun, in the future, lots of sun. I'll be there, it's up to you, you'll be there, if you don't do nothing foolish. You'll love it, I know it. I know what you like, and you'll love it. I know it. We'll need some vintage vino, so wash your feet and stamp away. Coming soon and everywhere, everyone will walk on air. Now it seems so far away, but each day it's getting closer and closer. Convenience and pleasure all blended together, and culture and madness. You think you've seen it all. You think you've seen it all except the future. For my money, the best moment of In the Future... Uh, is the final few hundredths of a second where some unseen hand seems to stop the record just before Russell can get out the rest of the word future. It's an ideal palate cleanser for the album's second and final single, Looks, Looks, Looks. But we'll get to that in a moment. Here's the future in the future. <laughs> song on Indiscreet, not counting the myriad bonus tracks, which we will get to in due course, is Looks, Looks, Looks. Looks, Looks, Looks is undoubtedly the album's showpiece, the most ostentatious example of Sparks' expansive musical ambitions 
thanks to Tony Visconti, for what would be their final UK album. Like Get in the Swing, Looks, Looks, Looks required the talents of Tony Visconti to write out the various charts that the guest musicians, mostly brass players, would play from. Even if he felt sidelined, bassist Ian Hampton was impressed by Visconti's ability to successfully translate Ron and Russell's ideas into fully orchestrated pieces. Looks, looks, looks. He heard it a couple times, went off, and scored the parts overnight. Got the orchestra in the next morning, and bang, it was down. It wasn't enough for Ron and Russell to ape a big band sound for looks, looks, looks. They wanted the real deal. So Visconti brought in a full big band orchestra, seasoned players who had made their bones playing the swing hits of the 1930s by legends like Count Basie and Duke Ellington. The very instant after a fake record scratch kills off in the future, a high G note on a piano starts keeping time along with a hi-hat and cymbal. And then seemingly out of nowhere, the brassy swell of an entire horn section kicks off looks, looks, looks. And for the next two minutes and 46 seconds, you'd think rock and roll had gone out of fashion and the Glenn Miller revival had just begun. Russell's voice has no difficulty adapting to the alien musical terrain, leading curious minds to imagine what kind of figure Russell would have cut as a jazz singer some 40 years previous. Lyrically, Ron is at the very top of his game, musing yet again on the primal irrationality of human mating rituals. He discards the relevance of brains, wit, and oddly even money in mate selection, arguing instead that, quote, a face could launch a thousand hips, end quote. It's also possibly the first of many future Sparks songs where Ron tips his hand about his insecurities with his own looks while suggesting a bit of envy toward his brother for his subjectively better looks. Ron would revisit this tension several times over and over in the future with songs like Funny Face and I Wish I Looked a Little Better. It's hard to think the Pet Shop Boys weren't to some degree inspired by Sparks' songs like Looks, Looks, Looks when they sang, I've got the brains, you've got the looks, let's make lots of money. Here are the lyrics in full. Looks, looks, looks. You had sense, you had style, you had cash galore. Looks, looks, looks. You employed her and dressed her in formal fashion. Still, you bore her because you ain't got a nose that's straight, a set of perfect teeth. You got a built-in seat that makes you look a feat. You know that looks, looks, looks are why you rely on books. Looks, looks, looks. From the eye to the brains, just an inch or two. Looks, looks, looks. From the eye to the hearts, only slightly farther. The smart grow smarter, but still can't compete. And they know deep down that they are scarred for life and that a face can launch a thousand hips. It's going to be all right. If it ain't, don't blame me. It's your looks. At night, she masquerades her passion covered by a veil of calm. Say, put on your shoes. Say, put on your shoes. No use. One look at her and anyone can tell that she's on fire. Spot her error. Spot her error. Spot her error. Well, now she's all over you. Looks, looks, looks. No, it's not very hard to make history. Looks, looks, looks. Just some cavalry and a good uniform that fits in places where everyone tends to look and marvel at the way you lead them on and look and marvel at the way you win because of looks, looks, looks. As long as you're long on looks, spot her error, 
Spot her error, spot her error. Well, now she's all over you. Looks, 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 far away, close at hand. It's the only thing. On the seas and the sand, any place is laced with those who have it and those who can only look. Again, like it in the swing, looks, 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 pointed the way forward for Ron and Russell to eschew a permanent band altogether and simply work with a revolving set of session musicians to suit whatever their needs were for a particular song or album, at least while they were recording in the studio. They would, of course, try this route uh, on 1977's Introducing to Its Hilt, but with mixed results. Dinky now was particularly sidelined in the recording of Looks, Looks, Looks. He did not play on the song at all, even after insisting to Visconti that he could play in the desired style. Clearly, Looks, Looks, Looks was the kind of song that would necessarily suffer when taken on the road, since there would never be a budget to bring along an entire swing orchestra, let alone, you know, for just one song. Dinky did get to show off his chops playing in that Count Basie style, however, when the band brought the song into their live set list. Meanwhile, Ron's keyboard would do the heavy lifting in place of the various brass instruments in those live settings. When Sparks debuted the song on the British music show Supersonic in late 1975, many of the studio players accompanied the rest of the band on stage. Gray-haired and clad in tuxes, they brought to viewing audiences the odd spectacle of watching Dad's favorite musicians from the days of the hit parade co-mingling with one of the more recent rock acts of the day. For their part, Ron and Russell appeared to fashion themselves as some kind of lounge act on a cruise ship. Russell was decked out in a cream-colored jumpsuit, while Ron glared from behind his keyboard in a green sweater-slash-tie combo and a pair of fashionable yellow-tinted aviators. As a single, Looks, Looks, Looks managed to chart, but only a mustache hair higher than their previous single, Get in the Swing, 26 on the UK charts instead of 27 However, it did much, much, much better in Sweden. The B-side in most markets was uh, Russell's own Pineapple. However, in the U.S., it was the oddball um, track called The Wedding of Jacqueline Kennedy to Russell Mail. Let's have a listen to Looks, Looks, Looks. You had style, you had cash galore Looks, looks, looks You employed her in dress her in form of fashion Still you bore her Because you ain't got a nose that's straight A set of perfect teeth You got a built-in seat that makes you look your feet You know that looks, looks, looks Are why you rely on books Looks, looks, looks From the eye to the brains Just an inch or two Looks, looks, looks From the eye to the heart Slightly farther, the smart grows smarter But still can't compete and they don't deep down That they are smart for life and that a face can launch a thousand hips It's gonna be alright If it ain't, don't blame me, it's your looks Of late, she masquerades her fashion covered by a veil of con Say, put on your shoes Say, put on your shoes, no use One look at her and anyone can tell She's on fire Spark her ever Spark her ever Spark her 
Well, now she's all over you. Loops, loops, loops. No, it's not very hard to make history. Loops, loops, loops. Just some cavalry and a good uniform that fits in places where everyone tends to look and marvel at the way you lead them on and look and marvel at the way you win because of loops, loops, loops. As long as you're not on loops. Well, now she's all over you. Far away, close at hand, it's the only thing. On the seas, in the sun, any place is laced with those who have it. And those who can only look, 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 look. The final song on Indiscreet, at least its original pressing, is the languid to lusty torch song, Miss the Start, Miss the End. An enduring fan favorite, Miss the Start, Miss the End, is fundamentally a piano ballad, but its lusty, thrusting sing-along chorus has become so beloved by Sparks fans, it even inspired a scene in Peeny Shots' Never Turn Your Back on Sparks documentary, where Peeny enlists the help of some revelers at a British pub and literally turns the song into the drinking song that it sounds destined to be. It's really a three-part song with quite a bit of Sparks' trademark genre hopping that's pulled off so seamlessly you barely notice it happening. Showing his affection for 19th century classical composers, the opening measures find Ron's piano borrowing heavily from Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Russell accompanies Ron's gently cascading piano during these measures with a passable pseudo-operatic delivery overlapping himself at the beginning of each verse and in the process giving the aural impression of unfurling leaves or night flowers blooming in succession, each gentle blossom triggering the next. In the bridge, the song switches to a musical theater style, making for yet another moment that could have fit on the soundtrack to Cabaret. These measures use similar melodic repetition, but with Ian Hampton's bass leading the way back up the scale. The walking bass lines are accompanied by a single sustained piano chord at the beginning of each bar, ringing out like the bell of a clock tower. Next, there's a brief return to the first musical section, but this quickly reveals itself to be a feint. It's merely a bridge to the song's thunderous chorus, which plays us out and plays us out over the final 45 seconds of the song. As fond as Ron Mayle is of surprising listeners with melodies that don't unfold the way a typical pop song might, the chorus to Miss the Start, Miss the End is pretty straightforward. With my untrained ear, I hear a 1-4-5-4-1 chord progression generally, and I think it's in C major. Now that progression produces an effortless and satisfying setup, buildup, and resolution. For some fun, Ron plays a major chord with a flattened fifth just before resolving to a normal major under Russell's drawn out. And that faulty chord before the final tonic does quite a bit in lending a tipsy quality to the chorus's melody. 
And as a nice aural bookend, the song closes out with the same kind of Beach Boy style vocal harmony that introduced side two of Indiscreet. And what about the lyrics? I couldn't find any guidance on that from my usual sources, so I asked the good people on the Sparks fan Facebook group called, wait for it, Indiscreet. The prevailing interpretation for the lyrics of Miss the Start, Miss the End was that they represent a fly on the walls, uh, a wall of this cinema, symphony hall, opera house, whatever, account of a lustful couple who are so drunk on physical desire for each other, they can't even sit through an entire show in public together without losing interest in whatever's going on on stage or on screen and instead consuming themselves once again with carnal lust for their partner. If that interpretation is more or less on the mark, the song has libidinous company in the Sparks songbook. In just a few years, Ron would mine the same concupiscence for the more lyrically direct Sextown USA and all you ever think about is sex. The concept of ardent lovers finding total emotional satiety from their shared sex life was one that the then-unknown prince would soon build his entire career on. Eh, Madonna too, for that matter. Of course, via the decidedly unfunky spark sound of 1975, it was easy to forget you were listening to a song about sex when you, in fact, were listening to a song about sex. On the other hand, maybe that whole beast with the two backs angle is just motivated reasoning by folks who have been quarantined too long, and it's just about a couple of folks who can't be bothered to leave the house or get anywhere on time. I'm going to let you decide. Neither has a predilection, neither has an afterthought, and neither chair gets warm at all, and neither takes their jacket off. For this they'll pay the same money to see the event as you and I, and we'll see it all. They've never seen a curtain rise, kickoff, or the final gun, and never have they seen the titles flashing across the rising sun. I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. I will be silent again. Quiet now. It's all gonna begin. Miss the start, miss the end. Because they're such very good friends, and there are things to be loved and things to only attend. Miss the start, miss the end. The opening bars and the closing bars might as well not exist. They're not needed. Needed. Really needed. You and I have got to see the start. You and I have got to see the end. We need more than just each other. So much more than just each other. They don't need more than each other. Not much more than just each other. They don't need the total picture. Just a drawing of each other hung inside the bungalow, where wondrous things are all discovered. You and I must see how it starts and ends, and tell them what they missed once again. Miss the start, miss the end, because they're such very good friends. And there are things to be loved and things to only attend. Miss the start, miss the end. And... Let's go ahead and have a listen to Miss the Start, Miss the End. Neither has a predilection, neither has an afterthought. And neither's jackets warm at all, and neither takes the jacket off. For this they pay the same money to see the event. As you and I and we see it all They've never seen a curtain rise A kick off or the final 
gun. I never have they seen the tigers flashing across the rising sun. I'm done, I'm done, I'm gone. I will be silent again. Quiet now, it's all gonna begin. Miss the start, miss the end. Cause they're such very good friends. And there are things to be loved and things to only attend. Miss the start, miss the end. The opening bars and the closing bars might as well not exist. They're not needed, needed, really needed. You and I have got to see the start. You and I have got to see the end. We need more than just each other, so much more than just each other. They don't need more than each other, not much more than just each other. They don't need the total picture, just a drawing of each other. Long inside their bungalow, where wondrous things are discovered. You and I must it starts and ends and tell them what they missed once again miss the start miss the end cause they're such very good friends and there are things to be loved and things to only attend miss the start miss the end miss the start miss the end such very good friends And there are things to be loved And things to only attend Miss the start, miss the start Miss the end And for Music Buyers in November 1975 Indiscreet ends on those words The end Who knows Maybe Sparks had Abbey Road's career capper the end on their minds when they opted for such a literal closing statement. And in a few meaningful ways, Indiscreet and the tour that followed would signify an end of sorts for Sparks. It would be the end of their universally lauded glam rock phase, the end of their contract with Island Records, well, practically, and the end of Sparks ever again posing as an actual band and not a duo. Also, the end of their extremely fruitful residency in England. But before I continue on to the next chapter of the story, that's not all she wrote, or he wrote, for the Indiscreet Sessions of 1975. Sparks recorded what could have been a whole other side of music with the final UK lineup, although it can take some untangling to match up the songs that were eventually released as CD bonus tracks on Sparks' re-releases with the correct parent album. The following songs were recorded either during or shortly after the Indiscreet Sessions of 1975, but did not make the final cut on the record. Looks Aren't Everything, The Wedding of Jacqueline Kennedy to Russell Mail, Tearing the Place Apart, Gone with the Wind, Confusion, Profile, which was actually recorded with the Komono My House Band in 1974, but had portions recorded in 1975, and the Marianne Faithful collaboration Room for Two, which probably wasn't actually recorded. 
If I'm incorrect about anything here, I do hope that friend of the podcast, Rude Swart, or someone in the know, will correct me. To keep things consistent for Sparks fans who bought the various CD remasters of Indiscreet and Big Beat, or for those who may be listening to those releases on Spotify or on MP3, in this space, I'm going to cover the songs actually released with later pressings of Indiscreet here. Those tracks which were chronologically synchronous with Indiscreet, but actually released as bonus tracks on Big Beat, well, I'm going to come around to those during my Big Beat episodes. So that leaves five recordings I'll get into here. The original 1975 B-Sides Profile and the Wedding of Jacqueline Kennedy to Russell Mayle, the one-off reunion with Earl Mankey titled England, the non-album single I Want to Hold Your Hand, and a curious live track called Looks, 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 live at Fairfield Hall, 09-11-1975. Released as the flip side to the single for Get in the Swing, Profile had actually been collecting dust on studio shelves for a year or more, presumably because there were elements of the recording uh, that Ron and Russell were never fully satisfied with. Maybe it was personal instead of aesthetic. Uh, The original 1974 recording featured guitarist Adrian Fisher and bassist Martin Gordon, who both split from the band with some acrimony. For the official... B-side, 1975 version of Profile, Fisher and Gordon's parts were redone by Trevor White and Ian Hampton. Muff Winwood retained producer's credit instead of Tony Visconti. Musically, Profile pulls the admirable trick of sounding like it could have made the cut on any of Sparks' three UK records, a menacing cabaret-style stomp that has Ron banging out relentless minor chords on the piano, Profile is taken to another level of weird entirely when Russell's dog-whistle-shrill soprano is, sorry, falsetto, is countered by background singers in a baritone register repeating the song's title ad infinitum. It may have been Queen, not Sparks, who were singing songs about fairies and orcs in 1974, but on profile, Sparks sound like fairies and orcs doing the actual singing. And in this case, they're singing about a lover's frustration with never getting to see his lover's face straight on. All that would presuppose a power bigger than us, baby. Baby, baby, start looking at me. I know you've got a left eye. I know you've got a right. But will they be appearing together tonight? Profile. Profile. Don't your head include more than a profile? Profile. Profile. Don't your head include more than a profile? We're always cheek to cheek or cheek to face or face to cheek, but never face to... Hey, what do you say? Jackie serves to Johnny. Johnny serves to Jack. Jackie serves to Johnny. Johnny serves to Jack. Profile. Profile. Don't your head include more than a profile? Profile. Profile. Don't your head include more than a profile? Profile, 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 profile. Ooh. I ain't that fussy that a bit of second best would cause a sudden little turn in our affair. Once you've been ushered in, you ought to face the music and ignore the guiding hand. Surely you can. You ain't Whistler's mother or any other art. You ain't seen me lately, though. We never part. Profile, profile. Don't your head include more than a profile? Profile, profile. Don't your head include more than a profile. And I just in this very moment noticed all of those references to doubles tennis. Take from that what you will. Profile was later released 
on CD with the 1991 compilation by the same name, as well as both the 1994 and 2006 CD re-releases of Indiscreet by Island Records. And here's Profile. The other B-side actually released on a single in support of Indiscreet is an odd bird. 
The Wedding of Jacqueline Kennedy to Russell Mail was written for unknown reasons, and it doesn't really even qualify as a song. Although it did offer Tony Visconti a chance to feature his wife, Mary Hopkin, on a record duetting uh, with... Uh, Russell Mail. During the same sessions that produced the wedding, uh, Mary Hopkins also recorded her own version of Sparks's hit from Propaganda, Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth, which did not turn out half bad, actually. unavailable at the moment. However, if you wish to leave a message, please do so after the tone. Thank you. Do you, Jacqueline Kennedy, take Russell Mail to be your lawful wedded husband in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, till death do you part? I do. And do you, Russell Mail, Take Jacqueline Kennedy to be your lawful wedded wife in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, till death do you part. I do. Then I now pronounce you man and wife. Recorded in the waning days of 1975, Island Records announced, and then suddenly withdrew for the UK market, what would be Sparks' first single of 1976. Sparks' cover of the Beatles' chestnut, I Want to Hold Your Hand, is an example of that sort of musical bastard offspring that no album wants to claim as their parent. As it stands as such an utterly unique product in the Sparks canon, yeah, certainly up to that time anyway, it's best thought of as inhabiting its own planet. Odd, then, that the song would eventually wind up as bonus tracks on different CD versions of both Indiscreet and Big Beat. Maybe it was Ron and Russell's way of purging their Beatles preoccupation before conquering new sonic territory. Maybe it was an ironic critique of the overstuffed, coked-out production trends of 1976 pop music. Or maybe it was an ironic critique of the simultaneous reification and commodification of the Beatles' legacy by 1976. Or maybe it was just a piss-take. One thing, however, is clear and equally confounding. The recording was intended to be another duet with Marianne Faithful. Ultimately, however, Faithful declined the invitation to participate as she reckoned that revisiting an iconic song from the same era with which she was already associated would hardly make her seem relevant to the then-current music scene. At the helm of the one-off uh, single recording was producer Rupert Holmes some four years, by the way, before he would find pop stardom in his own right with the hit Escape, the Pina Colada song. If you like Pina Colada, in case you needed a hint. In late 1975, he was best known as a songwriter and producer for the very un-rock-and-roll Broadway icon Barbara Streisand. 
It was a curious choice to produce what was ostensibly a rock band, but then, as Holmes himself later professed, it was really Russell's idea in the first place to lend an air of over-the-top Broadway largesse to the Beatles' hit. I recall asking him if he wanted it to be movie big, as in a James Bond film, or Broadway big, and I believe he leaned towards the latter. Thus, I gave the chart an opening flourish, somewhat in the style of a theatrical overture. Now, I have no idea if that's actually the way uh, that the Rupert Holmes talks, but I like to believe it is. Sparks' version of I Want to Hold Your Hand holds the dubious honor of having more what-are-they-thinking articles written about it than anything else in the Sparks catalog. Music blog Pop Junkie compiled some of those reactions in a 2009 entry that contains the following. I thought that Scott Walker was going to pipe up, then this weedy little vocal squeaked out. A quite horrible version, yet compelling. Rubbish, though. Total rubbish. Terrible. I can forgive them, though, for the rest of the great songs they made. And then there was also this execrable orchestral assault. In an early 1976 issue, the official Sparks newsletter describes Russell's voice as, quote, sexier and more romantic than ever in a promotional blurb for the single. Kind of sweet, but also kind of weird at once when you consider that those words were most likely penned by Ron and Russ's mom under the pseudonym Mary Martin. Hmm. Love it, hate it. Wherever you fall on that divide, here's Sparks's I Want to Hold Your Hand. Let me be your man 
Finally, here's the B-side to the song we just heard, the fascinating and forward-looking England, which saw Ron and Russell reuniting with former bandmate Earl Menke. In the years that passed since the original incarnation of Sparks dissolved, leaving behind Earl, his brother Jim, and drummer Harley Feinstein, Menke had earned a reputation in the industry as a restless technological innovator, and he was fully immersed in the burgeoning electronic music scene. Recorded in Menke's home studio in Los Angeles near the end of 1975, England is full of the brutally precise beats and squelchy homemade synth sounds that Menke had made his specialty by then. While the song's component pieces are the stuff of the near future, the song itself is also the sound of medieval lords, knights, blacksmiths. You can't miss that unmistakable anvil sound. And knaves preparing for war. Sparks were frequently weird, but this was a new terrain of weirdness, or maybe a return to an old terrain of weirdness, and one can only imagine what an entire album of manky male collaborations would have sounded like in 1976 or 77. Lyrically, the song is Ron and Russ's kiss-off to their erstwhile home. It's not a condemnation of the country, per se, or its culture, but more like a captain's log or a scout's report back to the homeland. I've just come back from England with astounding scientific sort of news. There exist in England living creatures much the same as me and you. Sure, it sounds fantastic enough, but facts are facts most everywhere. That was in New York. It was in Paris. Maybe the coast of Peru. No, 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 not fair. It was England. Yes, it was. It was England. Yes, it was. It was in her coal. How was England weather? Much like ours, but with a moister sort of air. Their communication? Like ours, but with a drier sort of air. Reproduction? Good question. Final big surprise in there. That's just like New York, just like Paris, just like the coast of Peru. No, 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 me and her, there in England. Me and her, there in England. Me and her, there in England. Oh, no, 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 no. Lots of fun there in England. Lots of fun there in England. Lots of fun there in England. Oh, England, oh, England, England, oh, England, repeats several times. No, 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 lots of fun there in England. Lots of fun there in England. Lots of fun there, and you know, all right. I could tell you, darling, that you feel it's just some wild, wild fantasy in a parallel existence where we thought we masters really ought to be. Sure, go on and doubt it, that I dreamed it up. But friend, I know that everywhere's just like England. Everywhere's just like England. And England's just like everywhere I know. No, no, no. Everywhere is just like England. Everywhere is just like England. And England's just like everywhere I know. Here's England. With an astounding scientific sort of news There exist in England living creatures Much the same as me and you
song on our itinerary today is a live cut that was selected for inclusion as a bonus track on Island's 2006 21st century edition of Indiscreet. Perhaps the most notable thing about the recording is the chance to see how Sparks simplified and whittled down one of their most ambitious and sprawling songs from the album, using just the five-piece band. Dinky and Ian do most of the heavy lifting in approximating the swinging rhythm section from the studio recording, while Ron substitutes his Wurlitzer-like keyboards for the brass section. It's an impressive sonic sleight of hand and another reminder of just how skilled Sparks' band was during the island years. Thank you so much indeed. Okay, we got one final one for you then. It's a little one of them old uh, boogie numbers, you know. I think you might know it. Go! Looks, 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 
You up there. 1975 was absolutely bursting at the seams with frantic activity for Sparks. When they weren't in the studio recording their most ambitious album in their career to that point, they were on the road honing their live shows. They played a lot of shows in the UK, continental Europe, and the US. And even though their positions in the chart were slipping, their fan base was growing and growing geometrically in a few pockets of the Western world, say France and Sweden, for example. 
Island Records had shelled out big bucks to ensure Sparks had what they needed to match the vision and the ambition of their new album in late 1975. And even if they weren't able to keep an entire swing band in tow for the more extravagant numbers, they had a ton of material support behind the scenes. Four lighting crews, a traveling laundry service, a road crew that was 21 people strong, an official photographer, of course, that being Richard Creamer, the guy responsible for that unforgettable album cover. And then there were the folks in marketing. Life-size cutouts of Ron and Russell adorned record stores on both sides of the Atlantic. The label booked numerous interviews on television and radio for Ron and Russ, but Amidst all that Dosh spent and the attention lavished upon Sparks by their record label, if you were Ian Hampton, Dinky Diamond, or Trevor White, it couldn't have escaped your attention that it was only two guys in the band who were lapping up all the recognition, especially when live performances of Without Using Hands ended with dual spotlights showing only Ron's hands and Russ's mouth. And especially especially when a member of the Bay City Rollers introduced Sparks onto their program with the phrase, that great American twosome. A few times after a show, a couple of roadies would disguise themselves as Ron and Russell and head for a waiting limo outside the venue. They did this, of course, to throw rabid fans off their scent. No one felt the need to dress up as Ian, Trevor, or Dinky. During yet another American tour at the end of 1975, Ron and Russ made it clear that they had gotten restless. They had grown weary of England, as good as the country had been to them and their career. Meanwhile, sustained success in their homeland eluded a frustrated Ron and Russell. Maybe the final straw was when, while touring the West Coast, Sparks' road manager was deep in a phone conversation with the head of promotion at Island's American office, and the Island exec incorrectly assumed he had been on the phone with Ron Mail. At some point on the road in their native California, eh, it could have happened long before then too, Ron and Russ decided they were not going back. It's unclear if they were ready to extend invitations to the three other musicians to stay on board and plant fresh roots in Los Angeles along with them had the three Englishmen been keen on that idea. Clearly, Ian, Trevor, and Dinky were not, however, which made it much more convenient for Ron and Russ to pass them their pink slips and show them the door. Dinky and Trevor were the first to get the axe, according to manager John Hewlett. Dinky took the rejection especially hard. As Hewlett relayed to Dave Thompson, he was devastated because he regarded himself as a founder member of Sparks. He was devoted to the band and proud to be their drummer. Of course, Dinky never did fully recover, and he eventually took his own life in September of 2004. As for Ian Hampton, he was kept on for just a couple of weeks or so more. He received the bad news via telephone while he was visiting his old friend Ian Kimmett, who was then working for Bearsville in Woodstock, New York. As he told Dave Thompson, I recall flying back to the UK on Christmas Eve that year dressed for the California heat wave. Boy, did I regret it when I arrived at Heathrow. Ron and Russell once again had shed their skin professionally planting the seed in the minds of their fans that this instinct would prove to be one of the few consistent aspects 
of their career. For a sizable group of Sparks fans, the story effectively ends there. The so-called island years are perhaps the most universally celebrated of any Sparks era, and they would never reach the same commercial heights. But again and again, it would surprise old-school fans who hadn't kept up with the males after 1975 that the story of Sparks had only just begun. From here on out, however, the Americans would remain Americans, and this would be purely a two-man operation. I want to thank you for listening to my podcast. Once again, you want to uh, drop me a line, that's podcastsparks at gmail.com, or you can visit me at my Facebook page, All You Ever Think About Is Sparks. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful day. Stay safe. Wash your hands a lot. Stay home if you can. (laughs) 